invite you to stand with me. Uh, starting a brand new series uh, this morning. Uh, if you turn your Bibles with me, this the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. And we'll go through one through five together as we read together in verses 11 and 12. Okay, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecution and in all the affliction that you are enduring. Uh, verse 11 and 12, uh, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, you and him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, I want to say thank you for uh, Christ. We want to thank you, Lord, for what he has done and how he rules and reigns in, in this world. God, we just the thought of being at war with you, God, is, is humbling now that we are now in, at peace with you. Um, what a frightening thing, oh, Lord, to be at war with you. Uh, and yet, Lord, because uh, you wanted peace, you sent your son Christ to die for us and to forgive us of our sins and grant us eternal life. And this morning, God, as we go through this church who was heavily persecuted, who suffered much, we see their steadfastness, we see their endurance, and, and God, may we portray that same um, character and, and, and attitudes in our lives as we live in this world that is broken and, and fallen. Uh, even now, Lord, we pray for our president who... Uh, is suffering for COVID-19. We uh, pray for uh, all others also, Lord, uh, in the world who is suffering from this virus, uh, knowing, oh Lord, that we need to put our faith, God, in you and in you alone. So, Lord, we uh, come to this, uh, to this place, oh Lord, of worship, Lord, to do one thing is to praise your name and to exalt your word, God, and to live it out. So, God, I pray that you hide me behind your cross and they will just see Christ and they will hear Christ and they will know Christ. So, Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we've seated. Uh, title of our message this morning is, What Kind of Church Would God Be Proud Of? Taken from 2 Thessalonians. The story of Marley and me is a true story based on a family that live uh, their life caring and loving the world's worst dog. Uh, as John Grogan says, the, the book was released in 2005, but it wasn't until three years later that they made a movie out of it. It was about a 97-pound Labrador retriever named Marley who claimed to be the world's worst dog. He crashed through screen doors with alarming regularity. He went berserk during thunderstorm, destroying everything. He stole food of the dinner table, slobbered constantly, drank from the toilet bowl, ate bath towels, sponges, socks, used tissues, plastic toys, furniture, speaker covers, paychecks, and even an expensive gold necklace. The worst dog ever. 
Uh, I believe we have the second dog worse ever. <laughs> so our dog is not as bad, but he's probably getting there. Uh, we have bad trainers, you know, we're just bad walkers, and, and that's just what it is. But, but Marley was utterly lovable. So how could a master love a dog that had so many bad qualities? Because Marley had some good qualities as well. Uh, it reminds us of the church. The church is the same way. Uh, we can point out the faults and the problems within any church. Uh, we can talk about how there are um, decisions that we do not agree with, people that frustrate us, things that we have a problem with. But despite all of its imperfection, the church is something that we should love. I, d I didn't know how much I love the church uh, until we were shut down in March. I didn't know how much we needed the church. I took the church for granted. I, I didn't realize how important it was for my life. And I started thinking as I was preparing this week is, what if Jesus said, I scratched the idea of having church? How sad would that be? And, and let me give you a few reasons why I love the church. I, I love the church because the church is messy. Okay, did you guys hear that? The church is messy. Okay, it is. And the church is God's instrument to repel darkness in the world. Uh, the church is people, and I can't give up on people. Uh, there are no professionals in the church. Uh, my Savior Jesus uh, died to establish the church. The church is not one-size-fits-all formula. And giving up on the church means embrace a church of one, and that's scary. And the church has led the way in meeting the needs of the world. So, absolutely, we have a need for the church. Throughout my life, the church has meant a lot to me, I, I'm sure for many of you. Uh, the church has been very good, very special to me. I think that many of the problems people have with the church is because they fall, they fail to see the good that the church has to offer. Uh, over and over, uh, we see um, problems in the church. Uh, the reason is because I'm a problem. And the reason is because you're a problem. And, and the reason why there's problems in the church is because I'm a sinner and, and you are a sinner. And the reason why there's disunity in the church is because I caused disunity. Um, and, and, but over the next few weeks, uh, as we go through Second Thessalonians, I want to ask you to give yourself a chance to fall in love with the church. I want you to look beyond the problems and your frustration, see the church in the way that God sees the church. I believe that when we start to truly, sincerely love the church, it changes the way that we interact and, and the way we participate. We, we can talk all day long about what, we ex how, how, what He expects of us and how much we should be doing within the church. But until the people that makes up the church love the church and stand behind its mission, people will, will not do anything. Sadly, there are many Christians and non-Christians uh, who do not love the church. They show it by rarely attending, rarely giving, rarely doing any real work to help the church. You can say you love the church, but if you love the church, then we must show it through what we choose to do and how we choose to live our lives. And I love the church that Jesus bought with his blood, and, and I hope that you do too. Uh, there is no such a thing as a perfect church. Uh, if you find one and you end up joining it, it would not be perfect anymore. Right? So uh, find one, join one, and then they'll kick you out. <laughs> and, 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 and the point becomes is that we're, 
when the world says we're all in it together, actually it's untrue. Uh, in the world there's division. Unique can only be found in the church of Jesus Christ. Because we're bounded by one common denominator. Jesus Christ. And that's what makes this church so special. But let me set up a second Thessalonians for us as we go through this in the next few weeks. In Second Thessalonians chapter 1, it introduces to who wrote this letter. To Paul, uh, Silvanus, which is a prophet uh, in the church. And then Timothy, who is as Paul's son in the faith, a disciple of, of Paul. And then they write this letter to the church of Thessalonica. The second letter to the church that's like a begins just like the first letter did. Paul was a lead missionary team that had brought the gospel to the city along with Silas and who was highly regarded in the church. Moreover, Paul mentions his son in the faith, Timothy. So these three people is, went to this place during the second missionary journeys and we're going to plant a church. So Thessalonica was the capital of the largest city of the Roman province of Macedonia. Actually, it became its capital later on. The most important highway from Rome to the Orient went through this city. The highway was a busy seaport, uh, and which made Thessalonica one of the wealthiest and most flourishing trade centers in the empire. The city was uh, free, meaning it was allowed to self-rule uh, and was exempted from most of the restrictions placed by the Roman uh, cities. Uh, Acts 17 tells us that, what, that Paul and his fellow missionaries planted the church there during his second mission journey while he was in Corinth. So he wrote this letter while he was in Corinth. And this apostle had a special love for this church. Uh, the church could be actually uh, outlined this way. Chapter 1 is be encouraged. Uh, chapter 2, stand firm. And chapter 3, work. So this, this letter could be also outlined this way. In the first chapter, he's talking talking to discouraged believers who needs pastoral care. And then the second chapter, he's, he's dealing with disturbed believers that needed prophetic caution. And the third one, these are practical believers. Uh, these are disobedient believers who needed practical command. So this, that's kind of how the book is outlined. So this morning, I, I want to give you four reasons uh, why, four reasons why Paul or why God was so proud of this church. Look here with me in verse 1b and 2. In God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The key word here is the word in, which emphasizes the believer's eternal life is with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. His simple greetings here identifies the church were genuinely converted. They were possessors of eternal life, meaning that this church was a saved church. The people that actually attended this church were not fake Christians. They were real Christians. Actually, when you go back to his first letter to this church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, he said this, For when we brought you the good news, which is the gospel, it was not only with words, by, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that we that we said was true, that what we said was true. And he's telling us the kind of reception the church had with the gospel, that when they heard it, they, they heard it with such anticipation and joy because it just did not come with words, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit was speaking to this church. The gospel was so powerful that it transformed their lives. And, and that's what the gospel does. It's supposed to transform our lives. Um, 
In verses 6 through 9, as you continue to read uh, who they are, who the church is, so you receive the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of severe suffering it brought to you. What, what that means is that when they were getting saved, they were also getting alienated. When they were getting saved, they were getting persecuted. They were, getting, they were suffering for believing in Jesus. This, this were Christians who just didn't hear the message of the gospel, but they embodied it by saying, whatever will come into my life, I will accept. They were committed. In, in this way, you, also, you imitated both us and the Lord. I love that word, imitated. As a result, you became an example to all believers in Greece throughout both Macedonia and Acacia. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Acacia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us. And how you turn away from idols to serve a living and true God. Man, when, when I read passages like this, this is a church to be proud of, isn't it? Because everywhere people were going, they said, hey, have you heard about that church? Hey, have you heard about that church in Thessalonica? Man, they were awesome people. And even though they were suffering, they didn't care. They were so loving and caring and, and tender-hearted that their life went through. Their life sounded off. They were, they were like a magnifier. They were an amplifier to the world. And that's what the gospel does. Our lives is just as much as our mouths show the world whether we believe in the, in the God of the Bible. Jesus said in, in, eight, in Matthew 18, 3, he says, Unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. I, I want us to just unpack this just for a moment. Jesus said, unless. This means you must. You, you must do it. He says, unless you are converted and become like ch children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. See, to be converted as a Christian is to have a change of thinking, a change of belief about who Jesus Christ is. To, to be changed into a person who is no longer an enemy of God, but a beloved child of God. See, there has to be this transformation. See, when people say, you know, I'm a Christian, and I ask them, how do you know you're a Christian? If, if someone could tell you, you know, my, my thinking has changed, and my belief has changed about Jesus then you're converted. And, and part of the blessing of being a, a, a converted person is that you're no longer an enemy of God, but a beloved child of God. There's a, a, there's a transfer that happens for you from one being an enemy of God and now becoming a child of God. That's what conversion does. Paul Washer said, if a person professes faith in Christ, and yet falls away or makes no progress in godliness, it does not mean that he has lost his salvation. It reveals that he was never truly converted. See, to be converted is to be someone who has been changed inside by God and who demonstrates that change on the outside. It is not enough for us to say, I'm a Christian. Not enough. A Christian is one who shows it. Our faith is not something that we hold in private. It's something that we, we give in public. But let me warn you, once you declare yourself a Christian to someone, 
it's, it's game over. They, they, will, they will look at every way to what? They will look at every way to look at your life and say, hey, that's not true. You are not. And it is hard to live up to it. Because people have different expectations of you. And, and you might even think, you know, they, they have no right to expect perfection of me. Actually, they do expect perfection, don't they? Right? God doesn't, but they do. But where, where, do, we, where do we go from there? We need to be on our toes and, and we need to say, you know what? I, I am not perfect. I will never be. One day I will be, but I'll, I'll, in this world I will never be. But I will, I will do my best to represent Christ. That's what a Christian is. See, conversion is the idea of changing direction. The radical change in one's life, not a partial change. People often think, oh, I just need to change a little bit. No. It, it's not a superficial turning or a mere rearranging of one's life or modification of one's behavior. Conversion is not a gradual change that occurs over time, but an immediate one. A genuine conversion occurs deep within one's soul of a person. It is a decisive break with the old pattern of sin and embracing this new life, someone with Christ. The biggest jerk in the Bible is the one who wrote this book. His job was to kill Christians. His job was to make Christians suffer. His job was to tear the name of Jesus down. That was his job. But one day, God saved him and he was converted. And he became one of the most hated men by Christians to the one of the most beloved men in the church. So how could that happen? How could someone who's the biggest jerk in the church, right, become the most beloved man in the church? Conversion. That's what happened to Paul. He was converted. And his conversion, he became a, not a persecutor of the church, but became the what? Its champion. How does that happen? And it happened immediately. In James chapter 2, verse 14 to 20, when, pe when people ask, what is a Christian? Point him to this passage in chapter 2, verse 14 to 20. It says here, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith or you say you're a Christian, but don't show it by your action? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing and you say goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing, what good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces something good, it's, it's, it's a deed or it'll be a useless now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith or how can you show me your Christianity if you don't have good deeds? I, I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you're, you have faith for you have believed that there is one God? Good. Good for you. Because you say you have faith. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? You know, the world that we live in just wants to look at something real. They just want to look something authentic. 
They just want to look at something true because our world is full of false hypocrisy. And they're looking at you as Christians to say this, show me something different. Show me that God is really alive. See, when one is truly converted, um, people will see, people will know that there's a change in that person's life. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul tells us, this is why Christ came. It is for this reason for which he died. It was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. See, conversion is, is the crying need of every soul. Until one's life is turned from sin to Christ, nothing else matters. You know, I often, um, living in this world, sometimes we get caught up in it. Don't you? Don't we get caught up into this world, right? And, and we think that everything um, that is really non-essential matters. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, it doesn't matter. I'm saying it just matters very little. Because when it's all said and done, when one experienced uh, death, when one experienced uh, suffering, when one experienced a loss, um, does how much money matters? Does having a big house matters? Does having a nice car matters? Nothing matters. What, what matters? So the question becomes is, the only thing really that matters is one's relationship with God. Nothing else matters. Nothing else. Paul often would begin his letters with a greeting, grace and peace. And this is so important. Every time you see this, grace and peace. He opens most of his letters this way. Grace is God's unmerited favor given to sinful people. That's God giving you something you don't deserve. That's grace. Peace refers to the result of the grace that Christ made between man and God through the death of his son on the cross. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 through 6, it tells us, For there is one mediator uh, between God and man, that is Christ Jesus. Um, so the question is why we need a mediator, why we need someone to go for us. We need a mediator because of sin. See, there's no way that you and I could save ourselves, so we need someone to be our go-in-between. And, and that someone is Jesus. And, and the only reason why he came is so that he can rock, reconcile what was broken in the garden, right, what was broken in the garden to reconcile back to God so we, that we can have life. See, what happened in the garden, people often say, you know, okay, yeah, they ate of a fruit. No, it's more than that. Absolutely more than that. What, what they did is that they broke a perfect relationship that God has been trying to restore since Genesis chapter 3. And God is saying, okay, there's no way, no matter what good you do, could ever reconcile you to God because it's not going to be enough. So I'm going to send my son so that he can reconcile you to myself. When, when people ask me, you know what? People are really not that bad. Or what does God think of a, someone who does not believe in Jesus? In Psalm 711, if you've never seen it, it's not, you know, it's easy to remember 711, right? We all know what 711 is, right? Well, it's easy to remember because when you see Psalm 711, you will see what God thinks of an unbeliever. He says here, God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked, with an unbeliever every day. Every single day, 
that someone is not a believer in Christ, God is angry with the wicked. David says that God is constantly angry with unbelievers every day. But in verse 12, he tells us that if a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword and he will bend it and string his bow. You see that imagery? Right? God said here in verse 12, if a person does not, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. That's judgment. Right? But I'm so glad that it didn't end there. But this passage does mean, though, that God will fight against him. This psalmist expressed and described an important character of God that he's an honest judge. But he also tells us in Psalms 30, verse 5, if you don't have this memorized, and, and when, if you are a person who's struggling with sin and, and you don't think God wants you or love you or like you, uh, I, I want Psalms chapter 30, verse 5, be a comfort into your heart when it says, For his anger lasts only a moment. Would you say amen with me? Amen. It's only for a moment. Isn't that great? Right? But his favor lasts a lifetime. Double amen. Amen? amen. <laughs> right? And then weeping may stay for the night. Rejoicing comes in the morning. Does, does being a Christian make a difference? Absolutely. He makes all the difference. Because this is us. So if you're struggling with say, you know what? How come I keep on doing this sin over and over and over? And God says, my anger for that sin only lasts for a moment. But my favor in your life will last forever. Paul then, in, for the second time, calls God our Father, meaning he is the Father of all believers, shown not only by his sovereign authority, but by his loving care for us. We will see that this coming Friday when we go to the first part of the Apostles' Creed, that God Almighty. And, but he also calls Jesus Lord, meaning Master one who deserves our total commitment and obedience. Number two, Paul was proud of them because not only were they genuinely converted, number two, because they were growing in their faith. For look at chapter 1, verse 3 with me. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. In today's political correct environment, where we must be so careful to keep from offending others, we might all have to give reports like the fourth grader who wrote about the origins of Thanksgiving. The pilgrims came here seeking freedom of you know what. When they landed, they gave thanks to you know who. And because of them, we can worship each Sunday if you know where. And when we think about this, they did not fail to give thanks because they know where they came from. Paul's second reason why he's so proud of this church in Thessalonica is because of their growing faith. And it wasn't just, it was growing, but it was abundant and increasing. He starts off by saying, we ought to always give thanks to God for you. And, and what made Paul so grateful was that this, not the size of their church or the size of their building or the size of their budget or, the pop, or their popularity, but their growing faith. When I pray and look at the condition of our church, the one thing I don't fail to do is to give thanks to God for you. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's been a, a definite change for, for us as a family uh, because uh, I used to work at home. Uh, and then uh, through COVID, uh, 
Uh, my wife works at home. So that means that one of us has to go out, right? And you know who loses in that end, <laughs> right? So I got moved out. I used to say kicked out, but really moved out. So I, I was moved out of my office that I've had for, let me say, 12 years maybe, pretty good, 13 maybe, right? And then it got occupied by a college student and, and my wife. So I'm no longer permitted in our office. Uh, keep away is the sign. Uh, but I get a chance to work here at church. And there's not a day that has gone by that I don't start my day thanking God not just for who he is, but I'm thanking God for you. And, and I thank God for you because, not because of anything else that you do, but I thank God because when I see you hunger for his word, and, and, and when I see you love other people, and, and when I see you pray, I thank God always. I was looking back, um, I, I received an email this week and, and about... Uh, Memorial last Sunday, and, and, and you know we were able to, by God's grace, we were able to put a memorial together in three days or so, and uh, I got an email and received, and um, it's just Thanksgiving, but, uh, and, I, and I look at that email, and I said, wow, this is just more than Thanksgiving to me. It was, uh, it was a, a testament of what the Church of Jesus Christ is doing in here, that when someone is suffering, when someone is in pain, when someone has suffered loss, that we come together and we will do whatever is necessary to serve that someone and to love that someone and to give ourselves to that someone. And, and it's a testament. It's, it's, it's not it's so much like to be arrogant about it, but, but it's a testament of what we can do when we do it together. Because one, because we care for each other. And we give thanks to each other. And, and that's part of what Paul is saying here. He says, I'm not concerned about the size of your budget, the size of your building. No, I'm concerned about the size of your heart. So he's saying here, Paul is saying, you know, I love you guys because of the size of your heart. And he's saying, Paul tells us, as is right, meaning that God's will for us is to be grateful. Actually, first. Uh, Thessalonians 5.18, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. And I want you to notice that he did not say, for everything, give thanks, but in everything. Because being unthankful is really, is the very essence of having an unregenerate heart. Actually, in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, this is the world. They knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Learning to give thanks, everything means learning to trust God completely. That's how you give thanks. You know, did I like what happened? No, none of us like tragedy. None of us like loss. But, but it means that when we give thanks, we learn to trust God completely, knowing that He is in charge and that, he, and that understanding that all that happens is part of a larger picture that believers may not see, but God knows. See, evil will happen to believers, and it does not come from God, so we should not thank God for it. But when evil strikes, we can still be thankful for God because he will accomplish something wonderful through it. Amen. And, and a little boy was asked to pray for dinner. Before he bowed his head to pray, he looked at the dish, kale and asparagus and 
and broccoli. And closing his eyes, he prayed, Lord, I don't like the looks of it, but I'll thank you, God, anyways, and eat it anyways. <laughs> we, we have to learn how to give thanks. We don't like it, but we have to. Because it will free our heart. We all lost someone. Instead of being in despair of what we lost, actually we could give thanks that they were even given us a lot of years to rejoice. You know, we look back and say, you know, I could have done this, I could have done that. But, but really, can we just take back and say, you know what, yes, I, I have. I lost my mother at 56. And, and yet I get to look back at her life and say I could give thanks to God. Because even that, I had my mom for for. 30 or so years, 36, I believe. And then um, there's some kid right now that they're born, and yet their mother has died through childbirth, and yet they didn't even get to experience that. And, and yet I have so much to be thankful for. And, and when we stop giving thanks, we stop really living life. And, and Paul had learned that in, in Romans 8.28 when he says, and we know that God causes everything. He says everything. To work together for good and for those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. When, when I read the Bible, the one thing that you can't miss that God usually uses difficult times to build people's character and to strengthen it and their faith. It's easy to give thanks for the blessing, but it's more difficult to give thanks when life is spinning out of control. So when a believer can give thanks so willingly, he or she has trusted that God is completely in control of all situations and he's going to work this out. First Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecution and in the affliction that you are enduring. I was reading history books about this church, and did you know that, man, I, I can't even fathom it because uh, it was so overwhelming to me. As I was reading history about this church in Thessalonica, that as they gather, just imagining gathering together on a Sunday, and then the next Sunday, not knowing that someone who's right next to you will die out of, because of their faith. Let, let's say right now I ask you to turn to each other and then say hello. And then next week, you can't say hello to that person because that person is dead. Because how, that's how severe the persecution was for this church. No wonder Paul says, you know, therefore, I boast about you. For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecution and in the affliction that you are enduring. Paul uses the emphatic phrase, we ourselves, which shows the humility of the believers in Thessalonica who were no doubt stunned by the apostles' lavish and rich praise for them. Most likely they felt unworthy of such praise and affection from Paul. Also, they were probably uncomfortable accepting being the role model church. This was the role model church. And here's the irony. Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians from Corinth. Uh, the site of the most troubled, spiritually immature uh, of all the churches that he planted. So it was up to Paul and his team to speak proudly of their spiritual growth. You know, that's something that we need to actually recognize. Let me just ask you a moment. How many of you here needs encouragement a little bit? How many of you guys here personally like needs encouragement, needs a boost? How many of you guys, how many guys are like that? Needs encouragement? Because we live in a discouraging world, isn't it? We're pulled that people will just put us down, put us down, put us down, right? Isn't that what it is? Right? And we just need to be what? Encouraged. And instead of waiting to be encouraged by, by others, 
why can we make a decision to be the encourager? Right? Why can we make that choice saying, you know what, I'm going to decide today that I will be an encourager. That I will be a person who will build people up. I'll be a people that I will tell them when I see some growth in their life, I will mention it. When I see some more growth in their life, I will encourage it. When I see someone praying and their prayer life has changed, I will encourage that. When I see someone who's hungering for God, I will encourage that. When I see someone reading his word and being in the word, I will encourage that. Why can't we have discussions like that? Why can't we be a church that says, you know what, let's celebrate everything. How little it may be, we will celebrate it. Because it's worth celebrating. And that's the kind of church this church was. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3 to 5, Paul expresses concern for them. And, and, and I want you guys to... Uh, just listen to what's happening in the church. And to keep you from being shaken by the troubles you were going through. Man, it, it's that good here. But, but you know that we were destined for such troubles. Even while we were with you, we warned you that troubles would soon come. And they did so as, we, as you well know. Okay, I want to break this down for you in, in, in as plain as I can. Will you join a church where... Where God says, if you join the church, there's going to be a lot of suffering. How many guys will withdraw your membership? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, most of us will, right? But see, this church went beyond the suffering because the suffering that they went through became joy that couldn't be experienced without the suffering. And, and I want to tell you, this is why when I could bear it no longer, this is Paul, I sent Timothy to you to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter, Satan, had gotten the best of you and that our work has been useless. We see his fear that the affliction, the suffering might cause the believers to lose hope in the midst of persecution. But no, they got stronger through the persecution. They didn't get weaker, they got stronger. Actually, in 1 Timothy 1.3, he says, he prays for their persistence. One of the many blessings of persecution, that it strengthens the believer's faith by driving them to God. Okay, there's a lot in there. I just want to tell you, either suffering will drive you away from God, or suffering will drive you to God. Those are the only results of when we go through pain and loss and suffering, is that it will either drive you to God or drive you out of it. And my prayer for you is that when you go through times of trials and, and tribulations and temptations, drive yourself to God closer. Don't drive yourself out. Go to God. He is your only hope. Since the death of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, 43 million Christians have become martyrs for Christ. Over 50% of this were in the last century alone. More than 200 million Christians face persecution each day. 6% of whom are children. Each month, 322 people are killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. 214 churches destroyed or burned down. 722 forms of violence committed. That's what happens in the church today. So the apostle here, 
praises them for their steadfastness and faith in all the persecution and in affliction that you are enduring. He used the Greek word hupomone, which is not resigned or stoic, but they were patient and they were courageous. They were enduring trouble. He was boasting that in the face of persecution from the unbelieving world and the general affliction that result from the fall, these Christians in the church had the proper perspective of suffering. Jesus in John 16, that in me you may have peace. I love that. What does the world hunger now more than anything? Peace. Don't we? Is that what we hunger? Peace? See, in the world, you will have tribulation. That's given to you. But I want you to take heart, Jesus said. I have overcome the world. And the implication of that is you will overcome the world. But in me, you may have peace. Only in me. Apart from me, you are war. In a war. And then in verse 5, B, for which you are also suffering, present tense. And the Thessalonians' faith had grown not only despite the persecution they were undergoing, but also because of it. See, persecution destroys false faith. Um, one of the best paradigms to explain the importance of perseverance in the face of trials is Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed in, in Matthew, or, or in, also in Mark, also mentioned here. Mark described a sower with, who sows seed in four types of soil or ground. Three of the areas where the seed lands produce no fruit. The walking path, the rocky ground, and the thorns. Only one area produces fruit because it's from a good soil. Jesus then explains to his disciples in verses 19 to 23. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. Then the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in their hearts. See, people in the church... People go to church or watch the church every single Sunday, and they hear something good about the gospel. They hear something good about Jesus, and then they go, oh, I don't understand, meaning they don't go anymore to explore anything anymore. And so what happens is the evil one the, comes in and snatches whatever seed the Word of God planted in that person's heart. Then, then the seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. Man, I'm all in it. I'm all in it. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. The, the seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth so no fruit is produced. The seed that fell on the good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as has been planted. This is what the church looks like. People in the church are falls into this four different seeds. You're here, and, and you're hearing me, and you're hearing me preaching from the word of God, and you either are saying, you know what, I understand it, I understand it. And then there's people saying, you know what, oh, I, I get it, I do it with joy, and you immediately Accept it, and then something happens in life. Tragedies happens in life, and it rocks your faith. And then slowly, you'll just fall away. And then there's another type of Christian saying, oh, I get it, I get it, I, I love God's word, I, I love Jesus. And then, and then the attraction of the riches of the world gets in your head. 
man, I have all this money. I have all, all this stuff. I have all this. And, and, and then you suddenly your faith falls away. But a Christian is someone that no matter what happens in life, no matter what circumstances happens in life, no matter what, you will believe in God, that he's the only one who will give you peace. In, on January 9, 1985, a pastor of Bulgaria named Christo Kulusev was arrested and put in jail. His crime was preaching in his church. He immediately began to share Christ while he was in prison. He had a trial. It was a mockery of justice, and he was sentenced to eight months. He did his eight months, uh, got out, wrote these words. Both prisoners and jailers asked many questions, and we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have ever expected in the church. God was better served by our presence in prison than if we had been free. So he committed another crime of preaching to the streets. And he spent the rest of his life uh, until he died uh, in prison. And stories have, have circulated that in his um, 23 years in prison, uh, that 9,600 people came to Christ. By being in prison. He said, I'm a better pastor in prison. <laughs> was his testimony, right? And, um, and Satan has two lines of attack. First, he tries to keep you from becoming Christians. Then, he, then if you stop there here, he tries to keep from being, you being active and useful as Christians through persecution. Sadly, many have started the Christian life with blazing speed, wanting to teach and serve, but eventually drifted away from the church completely turned away because of these issues. See, it's not how one starts, but it's how one finishes. Reason number three, uh, for their love for one another. Look at verse 3b. And, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Um, again, this is one of the things I, I, I give thanks to the Lord is because uh, uh, one thing that we are not, uh, we don't have a big budget. Uh, we don't have a big building. We don't have anything big. You know? uh, everything that we have is small. Okay? If we're known for something, small. Okay? Small. Uh, we're not big of anything. We have nothing big. Um, and, you know, we, we just don't. But one thing is true about this church, and, and you could call me a liar. I give you permission to do that right now. Um, if I wouldn't say that one thing that we are not, uh, we might be small in everything else, but we're not big in, we're not small in our love. That's what we're not. Okay, a lot of people will have big things. I'd rather have them have their big things, and I'll take our big hearts. That's something that, what we have here in this church, how small we are, is that we're learning each day to love one another. I mean, how could you not love the guy who does announcements? You know, can you imagine that? That is love. I mean, you know, I, I look at Natalie and she's squirming and, and I said, that is love. <laughs> you know, she didn't stay, like move another chair. She actually got closer. That's love. You know, um, and, and, and what we see here, though, is that... Um, when he says, as we pray to you, our God and Father, about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and, and the enduring hope you have because of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Their faith in God was being evidenced by their love for each other. In the life of the church, you see true Christian minister motivated by their love for others. You see, love is not some fuzzy emotional feeling, or it can be. Uh, like uh, a few weeks ago when we celebrated Barbara's birthday, uh, we tricked her, and she came to the door, and, and the first thing she said, Lamb, how come my house is dark? <laughs> and then we all popped in, and surprise! And then there was no words of saying, hello, everyone. Thank you. No, there was no words. She's like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> and I'm like this. Uh, Barbara, you okay? You okay? I go, are you glad we're here or you're crying that we're here? I don't want to know. <laughs> right? but, but that was just a memory of Christian love. Um, man, we would love to celebrate each other's birthday. Wouldn't it be great? Because that's how we could express the love we have for each other. Uh, last night we got to celebrate another one. You know, I don't know if there's much love there because uh, they know I don't eat raw foods, and they serve raw foods, right? But they enjoy it. I, I, nothing against it. You know, I, I used to have it in my dreams, but no more. But I, I was with Dong, and, and there was no complaint in his face. Everything that was brought to him, he ate. That, that was a man of joy, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean... Because it was, it was just one of our, our elders here who just said, you know what, I, I love my brother and, and I want to celebrate him and I want to invite him to my home and, and I want to just, just love him. I just want to love him. And what if, what if, I'm just going to ask you guys this, what if we could just stop for a moment and, and just say, you know what, can I just decide to love someone? Regardless of what I feel or what, what he is or what she is, it doesn't matter, I'm just going to love I'm just going to choose it. You know how your life will be so fulfilling because of that? Right? We are so good at complaining. We are so great at complaining. Right? How about we, we become so good at loving? How about if we turn our complaints and, and, and all of that to loving? What would that look like? That, that's what it's called for for us. This church, in the midst of their suffering... They were like, in the midst of their suffering, they were loving each other. It is so hard to love when you're suffering, but not this church. This church, instead of complaining about what's happened in their life, they start loving other people and being fulfilled in that way. And I, have, I hope I don't have the time to unpack most of this, but it's just so uh, awesome. But let me tell you this about this elderly lady, okay? An elderly lady was amazed at how nice a young man was next door. Uh, she had a heart of hearing, so every day he would help her gather things from her car and help her in her yard. One day, the old lady finally asked the young man, son, how did you become such a fine young man? He replied, well, when I was a boy, I was, I was dragged to church, right? Then the old lady didn't say, she, stopped, she didn't hear church, she just says, drug, not drag, but drug, and then so the old lady was shocked. I can't believe that you're in drugs. <laughs> and then, it's, it, ma'am, it's true. The young man said, my parents drugged me to church on Sunday morning, dragged me to church on Sunday night, and dragged me to church on Wednesday night. I go, the lady said, your parents dragged you to a drug center? <laughs> 
No! Because that's how church makes a difference. When we get dragged into church, we get to really what? Exemplify love. This is the only place that we could exercise love, isn't it? Right? And we want this to be transformed in our life, in our family, in our homes. But this is where love is. And, and Jesus said, what's love? Put somebody's interests over yours. Look at somebody's life and say, how could I make that person's life better than mine? That's love. How could I take a back seat and for that person to have the front seat? That's love. First Corinthians chapter 13 is the love chapter. Uh, many people um, have used this. Um, I was not saved yet, but I really loved First Corinthians 13. And I was in high school. And I liked this girl. And I said, I'm going to write her a poem. Right? And she was a Christian. So I wrote this poem. Hey, I wrote this just specifically for you. You know, um, love is patient, love is kind. Right? So I list all that. And then she got back to me and she said, hey, uh, uh, I know you didn't write this because uh, I, I read this in my Bible. <laughs> so <laughs> that didn't fly out. But when we think about First Corinthians 13, um, when it says love is patient, many of us struggle with patience. But this verse encourages us to be patient. To remember that love in and of itself is patience. Love is kind man, means it frequently to love neighbors more than ourselves, to help strangers, to live out kindness. Love isn't boastful or prideful. Love isn't self-seeking. Love doesn't get angry. Love doesn't keep a record of wrong. Uh, love rejoices with truth. Love always protects. Love hopes and, and perseveres. And let me give you five things about love if you're taking uh, notes. Love by being relational. Love others oftentimes requires getting to know them by, by neighborly, by saying hello and building relationship with those around you. Whether this means conversing with neighbors, coworkers, or others in and outside of your circle. Being relational is often the first step. After, a lot, after all, how can you know of the needs of those around you if you aren't interacting with them? Also consider being a listening ear for those who need one. Uh, number two, love is being always a helping hand. Pay close attention to those around you. Is anyone in need? Perhaps there's an elderly neighbor who needs a lawn mowed, or maybe there's someone who's struggling with getting a yard work done. Sometimes loving your neighbor as you love yourself means going out of your way to show simple acts of kindness and, and compassion. Love is by stepping up to the plate when someone is struggling. When unexpected circumstance falls on our neighbor, be the hands and feet of Jesus. When illness or chaos strikes, consider making a meal for the afflicted. If there are transportation needs, offer to volunteer your services. Not only does it help in a practical sense when people volunteer to take action, but it shows true friendships. Number four, love by lifting them up in prayer. Another way to love your neighbor as you love yourself is to lift him up in prayer. Um, number five, this is probably the hardest one, love by forgiving. Love by forgiving. Forgiveness can be difficult, but with God's help, anything's possible. What better way to show the Lord's love for humanity than to exhibit forgiveness he has given to all humanity? It's been said that it takes a strong person to say sorry and an even stronger person to forgive. Number four, reason number four, for their prayer life. To this end, we always pray for you. This was a praying church. And when you look at this passage, we only, Paul had one prayer for them that they will walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. 
You know, that's, I actually started praying for you in this manner. I used to pray for you for a lot of things, but I kind of consolidated that through just this one prayer. Because I think it encompasses everything else that, that we pray for. The one thing that we're going to pray for is that we could pray for each other's walk. That our walk in Christ, that our life matches the way that Christ walk, that Christ live. If we could just pray for that for each other, man, can you imagine what God could start doing in our lives? You know, if, if there's one thing I could ask you to pray for me, is pray, pray that I will walk worthy of this calling. Pray, pray for me that I will walk as Jesus walked, that I will talk as Jesus walked, I will act like Jesus acts. That's my, only, that's my only thing that I'm asking you to pray for. And if there's something that you could ask someone to pray for, is ask them to pray for your walk in Christ. And I love this because uh, God says that when we pray, that it's God who's going to work in us to will and to act according to his good purpose, according to Philippians 2.13. So, um, just, in, just in closing, I, I want to invite you this coming Wednesday as we pray uh, online virtually at 8.05. And our theme for this coming um, week is God Almighty. Uh, so, let me conclude by this. This, this is my church. Uh, it's composed of people just like me. It will be friendly if I am. It will, be, it will do great work if I work. It will make generous gifts to many causes if I'm generous. It will bring others into its fellowship if I bring them. Its seats will be filled if I fill them. It will be a church of loyalty and love, of faith and service. If he who makes it what it is and filled with this. Therefore, with God's help, I dedicate myself to the task of being all these things I want my church to be. And that's the church that God will be proud of. Uh, I just want to tell you, uh, as we will give thanks for the Lord's Supper, uh, in a minute we will celebrate this um, great celebration. Uh, I just want to tell you that this was only made possible because of what Jesus Christ done at the cross. And this is only possible because when he, when he died on the cross, he forgives all your sins and grants you eternal life. But Jesus did not stay there on the grave, somewhere in Jerusalem. He's not there. He is alive. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, loving us, caring for us, defending for us. And he says, one day I will come again to my saints. So where I am, they will be also. And that was only made possible because of Jesus Christ. So as we look and celebrate the Lord's Supper, we don't celebrate a death Savior. We celebrate a resurrected Savior who will come again as King. We celebrate Him. So yes, there's a portion of sadness because of our sins. And there's a portion of sadness because I take this to remember that Jesus actually died for my sin and suffered for me. We have a portion of sadness, but we will also have a portion of celebration that will be happy that He was not at the grave, that He rose from the grave. And because of that, we could rejoice. Because we could rejoice. If he's alive, we will be alive. Right? And because he's alive, we will have everlasting life. Because he's alive, there's a room for us in heaven. Amen? Amen. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, uh, at, at this moment, I, I just want us to just do one thing first. It's just to say thank you for the cross. 
God, we just want to just say thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us, showing us compassion, uh, giving us, Lord, your unmerited favor. And for, Lord, for giving us, Lord, the peace that passes all understanding, the, the peace of God that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, the peace, the Lord, as a result because you paid for our sins. And, and God, secondly, we just want to take this time to just clean ourselves of any sin, of any wrongdoings that we have done, knowing, the oh Lord, that you're a God who can't wait, who encourages, O oh Lord, to, um, to repent and, and to ask for forgiveness. So even now, Lord, we want to ask that you forgive us of our pride. Uh, God, you forgive us, O oh Lord, of our complaints. God, you forgive us of uh, just taking you for granted. God, we, we forgive us, O oh Lord, for putting so many things above you. Forgive us for our idolatry, God. God, God forgive us, O oh Lord, um, just, just even looking, O oh Lord, for others to comfort us, and, and yet you're the one who could bring us ultimate comfort. God, there's so many things in our lives that, that we are, um, we need to for, for ask you for forgiveness. God, even we forget, oh Lord, the things that we watch, the things that we indulge ourselves, our mind. God, we forgive that you purify it. And God, knowing, oh Lord, that when we ask for forgiveness, you have promised that you are faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and lead us to all righteousness. So, Father, we not only just ask for your forgiveness, O oh Lord, but we accept also your forgiving mercy. That now that if we have confessed our sins, you have wiped it clean. We thank you for that. And that's what, Lord, the cross brings us. But also, Lord, we rejoice in hope of the resurrection. That even when we are suffering, this is not the end. Actually, we haven't even begun what life looks like until we come to you in your presence. So, Lord, help us, O oh Lord, to rejoice in the fact, O oh Lord, that if we are here and we as a church just lost a loved one, that this was, was never a goodbye, that it will be a see you later. That, Lord, that we will see our sister Lisa again, God, in all her glory and the resurrection that is in her in Christ Jesus. And, and, and God, even as we now celebrate this, Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for making this possible. So uh, as the music plays, as when you're ready, uh, we will pass out the elements and, and we will take the elements together. But just take this time to be with God just for a moment and just to have silence and, and thank God and confess to God and, and, and rejoice in God.